rather than invoking an actually existent past and comparing it with the present, I think it's I think the the, the point of from which we can criticize the, the current moment, the point at which it can be found wanting, is by the, the is in terms of the futures that were projected from the twentieth century, not the actual existing past. You know that it's the the shocking difference between uh, what we thought might have happened um, and what what actually has happened. And in the face of that, I think we're almost offered as an opposition between a certain kind of politicized melancholia and uh, depression. Politicized melancholia would be a refusal to adjust to the, the present moment. A refusal to adjust to this to say, I can't accept this. Yet, uh, you know, if we're not to accede, if we're not to completely submit to this, this present where the future has disappeared, um, you know, what remains is a, is a certain set of longings, um, yearnings, etc. And it's a kind of fidelity to those yearnings and longings that uh, is one of the things that I track in, in, in the book, really. I was speaking to my mic rather than, oh, yeah, rather than to you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why don't we kick it off there? Welcome to The Pill Pod. This podcast is available in the following formats. Spotify, that's not a format. MP3, but now something new. This episode only, we will be releasing an NFT format. Uh, we are gonna start the bidding at 50K, which is good because we only have to split it three ways today. Sweet. <laughs> I expect to be a millionaire soon enough. So uh, 50K, start the bidding. You can uh, DM Matt on Twitter, don't DM me. So. <laughs> Uh, cast that on me <laughs> this is an arrangement on the pill pod that we've never had before um yeah. but it's me pills matt mcmanus and mike watson hey mike hey hi there how is your uh, i was gonna split something three ways i'd probably make it sixty thousand just for the maths okay why not it's bubble money so what is ten thousand dollars among friends anyway right how is your uh, crypto portfolio? Actually, yeah, I said that I don't like to speak about it because it's like making out that I have money or something or, or you know, or I have amounts of uh, investments. But uh, the little I have is looking good. Yeah. Yeah. I keep I keep I'm, I'm never going to do that because it's too many too many transfers. But I always look at the numbers going up and go, fuck, I there goes my chance. Oh, another chance. Oh, there goes my chance again. I don't know how you would call it schoolboy errors. I think this time I'm avoiding some of them. All right on. Well, I'll have to get some uh, trading advice from you afterwards. Though, though, even though obviously the value of currencies is more or less arbitrary, not completely arbitrary, but uh, there's still an imaginative leap that that kind of shit requires that I am still unwilling to take as of yet. You grab any of that people, speaking of which. Uh, that would be good. <laughs> okay, so all three of us are sitting uncomfortably with one foot in the academy and one foot in the internet, internet denizens. Uh, Mike is an internet denizen in addition to being, I mean, I hope this is okay, a Frankfurt pupil. Can, can we go there? <laughs> Frankfurt <laughs> we, pupil. We got that real critical theory in here, so... If you've been around our little pocket of the internet, uh, Mike and I, Pills, worked together on a video about a year ago, 
about the commodification of anti-capitalist art. And we said at the end of that video that memes could represent a form of resistance to commodification. And damn it, Mike, I guess we were wrong. Well, yeah, I suppose the thing is, what, what did we really say? Or well, something I've said also in, in my last book, second book, Can the Left Learn to Meme? And in the next book, The Meming of Mark Fisher, um, you know, there's a potential for abstraction within within meme making, but it's less the it's less the individual memes. It's more the sum mass of all memes, which creates an abstract whole, which can be disorienting and can kind of throw off the kind of rationalist capitalist system. Hopefully, um, I don't know. It obviously, doesn't look like it's doing that when you're getting people making uh, millions of selling of memes and NFT. It looks like exactly the opposite is happening. But I'd still wager there's a lot more memes not making anyone any money and just annoying them. <laughs> so you know, I think memes generally have the effect still of disorienting people and not having any particular use value. Yeah, I mean, some of those memes that I see you still post around the internet basically have to be like Roman artifacts in internet time. Like there's the one with Kermit drinking the scotch, and I'm like, damn, I remember seeing that all the way back in 2016. My Republican uncle tweeted that all <laughs> the time to like Trump shit posts, and I'm like, 2016 by now is like an eternity ago in the internet. Wait, wasn't he drinking tea? Was it tea? I thought it was supposed to be scotch is what Termit had or something. That's the point. You know, he's the fucking frog and <laughs> he wants to get hammered because the world is like too full of crap. You would see scotch where everyone else sees tea. That's true. Well, um, <laughs> true. a few days ago, Disaster Girl, the girl looking uh, into the camera in front of a burning house sold for 500 grand. Beeple, the artist who puts out a piece of art per day i have no idea how he does that but uh sold the world's third highest sale for a living artist behind uh jeff coons and some other dude 69 million dollars for a jpeg kings of leon released an album as an nft and even some uh institutional artists like takashi murakami are getting on the train selling uh jpegs wait 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 wait, wait. Kings of Leon are still together? It has been a minute since your sex was on fire, but yes. Holy fuck, I can't believe it. Yes, they are. Really? Wow. That's like finding out that like Oasis are still around. I can't believe it. Okay. I'm sorry. I know that has nothing to do with anything, <laughs> but I'm just blown away by that fact. But the also the hackers are also in there selling forgeries, trying to uh, pass their, their, whatever you call them, the blockchain thing off as a... Uh, originals by Beeple, but they're not. Mm. Um, Beeple's thing was right ahead of Jeff's orange balloon dog. What's the orange balloon dog one again? You know those giant balloon dogs that are made of like, uh, I don't know, fiberglass or aluminum or whatever they are? No, not a clue. I'm gonna... Jeff Kuhn's giant balloon sculptures are more or less the symbol of the kitschy, banality, nihilism of modern art. Oh, okay. I see. I'm surprised, though, because there's, like, meme royalty. Have they uh, sold yet? That one with the cat and the blonde girl is still really popular. I see it, like, trending all over the place. Just the other day, one of my students sent me one, and I was impressed because it was still the fucking the Willy Wonka meme, you know, the one with Gene Wilder, uh, and he's sitting there looking all smug and shit. All right. So, uh, Mike, I wanted to ask you, getting getting into the content a little bit here, um, as with a philosophy background, you read 
not the not the Frankfurt Germans, but more the Romantic Germans like uh, Kant, Hegel, Heidegger. The Schiller. way that they talk about art as this quasi-religious gateway to a new world of experience or portal to the beautiful itself. And now it's a racket. So how do you square that in your mind? A whole new world, a dazzling place can't opens for me. The transcendental I can never see. It's only phenomenal. Okay, go on. Matt, I think I speak for all of us in saying that was sublime. I think the racket came in actually via Adorno, but he wouldn't like that kind of statement. Um, but I guess it was just a kind of a move from some romantic notion of, of beauty as a unifying factor coming down from Kant or some ideal of perfection or, or at least a perfection to be attained to. Um, it was kind of a shift from that to everything basically is screwed, but let's still use art anyhow. And then art moves from being a kind of aspiration to, to beauty as a kind of so, so, one second, like Adorno and Horkheimer saying everyone is screwed. Never, not on my watch. Will you say that? Yeah, because they were good time guys. They were just like <laughs> they were the guys you wanted at a party. I must have them mixed up. But um, yeah, Adorno was uh, characteristically negative. I mean, he was he was he was known for being a very negative. People say melancholic, but I, I mean, I think that's kind of polite. Um, or you know, it's using kind of archaic language for for depressive at the least. And I think he tried basically to, to kind of refashion uh, Kant's vision of artistic beauty as a kind of a surrogate for an ethics that, that, that didn't ever quite happen. Uh, so Kant basically used artistic beauty as an indicator of how we could find universal accord where we can't find it in relation to ethics. And then Adorno, I don't think he could go along with the universal accord on even beauty after World War II. So he kind of said, um, you know, perhaps through art, we can make something so just, you know, meaningless that we can challenge the meaninglessness of existence itself. And this also obviously um, changes the role of the artist, whereas it's tied to this, someone who's a, a special kind of seer or a special kind of genius and their work of art is tied to them individually. Uh, how did this change uh, with Adorno almost pointing to the absurdity of art in general? Is it is it more collective necessarily? Or what would you say happens to the, the role of the artist? Adorno, the absurdity is just more because he finds it hard to say there can be any meaning or any kind of sense of progress um, at that point in, in the 20th century. So he was, you know, active during World War II and after up to late 60s. Um, so he's kind of grappling with, with there just being nothing seeming good. And then just like every movement that had tried to go along with the idea of progress had, had just failed miserably. And this is talking in a political as well as kind of aesthetic sense, more in political sense than aesthetic sense. So he was kind of really loath to go along with any kind of notion of progress, given the calamities that kind of came about in World War II. And then recall that he was a, he was a German Jew exiled uh, throughout the Nazi period. So um, it's really that. It's, there, there's no kind of uh, aspect of bringing art down from its pedestal. It's not saying that art is not perfect and anyone can make it or trying to kind of, you know, take, take art off, you know, 
from that kind of height. Um, it's it's very much not that. I think he's still think only an expert can make a you know thoroughly un- unintelligible piece of art. You'd have to be really good at doing it. I'm not an aesthetic theory, so this might be a very naive question. Uh, my understanding of Kant is that he kind of operates in a, a weird midway point uh, between modern theories of art and classical theories of art, because he does argue that the kind of importance uh, or what makes something a piece of art is that its aesthetic qualities are purposive in and of themselves. Uh, they don't serve some other utilitarian function. You know, I look at Rembrandt and I appreciate it for what it is. I'm not asking why can't this painting be used for something more useful than just my enjoyment of it. But he does also give it a kind of social function in that in exposing us to aesthetic virtues as part of a community of people who appreciate aesthetics, it can provoke us to think more critically and carefully about our ideas, right? Uh, And it seems to me that Adorno and Horkheimer take this aspect of Kant's theory of art and really push it a lot further by both historicizing art uh, and suggesting that it has to play an important political function that it's not actually playing uh, because it's been co-opted by the mechanisms of the culture industry. But Matt, it does play an important cultural function now because the Russian oligarchs got all under their money by keeping all the Rembrandts in their basement. That's true. Well, yeah. Let, let if you're listening, any Russian billionaires with like you know an, an oil rig or something. Uh, that's not meant to be a slag at you. But th- the reason I'm asking that question is because I think that this is a chance for us to have an interesting discussion about two different ways that people tend to think about art today. Uh, both of which are usually juxtaposed uh, kind of sharply to one another, but which Kant seems to think uh, actually go harmoniously together. You know, some people say, you know, and you hear this from conservatives a lot, like art isn't supposed to be political. Art is just supposed to be pretty things that you enjoy for their own sake. You know, a kind of classical conception of art. But basically, Kant wrote his first two critiques of, of practical and pure reason. I don't remember in which order. And he was trying to find a common ethics he was trying to prove a common ethics on account of the functioning of the mind rather than, than you know, deities or, or what have you, God or what have you. Um, and so he wrote the third critique as a means of introducing that common ethics or simply common sense, like a common way of thinking or a way we can find universal accord, what he called the census communis, I think which just means common sense in Latin. Um, And basically what he found is that when we, for example, look at natural beauty, so imagine a mountainscape, imagine being on your own maybe, or at least in silence, looking at a mountainscape. And there's a certain certain point in which your mind becomes suspended. You're no longer able to make judgments and it was that suspension of judgment he was looking for. And he basically said that if you suspend judgment, it follows that everyone else will find universal accord about that thing, about that experience. So this is why looking at natural beauty becomes important because you're not able to, to categorize and to measure and to, to, to name things. And therefore you're not able to form judgments of taste as he called them, as whether something is, is good or bad or right or wrong and that's where you get universality and if we can have that in relation to natural beauty it follows that we can have it in relation to ethics but only by example you know in the sense that natural beauty is exemplary of how we can have an ethics but it doesn't actually give us anything that we could contribute towards that ethics 
Well, I, I would interpret it in somewhat differently, but that's because I see Kant as a less conservative thinker uh, than somebody like Adorno and Horkheimer would. Uh, and this is why I just want to get back to like the kind of conversation just so that we can try to figure out whether art is supposed to be just about, again, pretty things that we enjoy for their own sake or political. Because he, he seems to, again, say that the thing about art and aesthetic beauty uh, is, yes, we enjoy it for its own sake, but reflecting upon why we enjoy it for its own sake as part of the census communis can inspire sharpening of our critical capacities. Uh, and he points this out in the second part of the Critique of Judgment, where he says, what makes my theory of nature different than Aristotle is Aristotle would say, there's a kind of teleology of purpose to nature in itself, right? Uh, whereas what I'm saying is that when you think about it carefully enough, you realize that any purpose that you ascribe to nature actually is coming from you. You're the one that's ascribing that purposiveness to nature, Right. Uh, and when you reflect on that and realize it, you'll be cognizant of the fact that it's actually human subjectivity that's playing this fundamental role uh, in determining what the purposes of existence are, which is different than what Aristotle, for instance, would say. Right. Uh, and so this seems to have a political dimension to it in offering us a kind of freedom when it comes to aesthetic interpretation that you wouldn't find in someone like Aristotle. And Adorno and Horkheimer pushed this even further by saying, great art should really encourage us to sharpen our critical faculties. Uh, not just our critical faculties in the way that Kant is talking about, but our capacity to be critical of things like capitalism, the culture industry, uh, the mass production of banal art, uh, which is not intended to serve these functions. I just got to slow you down for a second because uh, we're getting, I never expected to get in the weeds on Kant's aesthetics. But uh, what, we're, what we're generally saying here is that the third critique, Kant's trying to get to when you see something sublime, when you see something beautiful, there's a sense of universality in, in that, that even though this site, this beautiful art, this beautiful uh, waterfall is not doing anything for you personally, you have the sense that, that there's a universal, uh, what do you call it, appreciation for that beauty that not just you have, but that everybody else will get to it. So the art is supposed to wake you up to the fact that, uh, to the census communist, which would eventually give you this uh, political sense of universal common sense, or uh, it, it awakens you from this beauty because you know this beauty is not just yours, that uh, you're part of the... I don't know, human community. Yeah, like the way I think Kant would specify it is like, look, Aristotle says there's a telos to nature, which means that it's ugly if you engage in certain activities that are unnatural, like homosexuality. And a lot of Aristotelians still make that kind of argument in an aesthetic manner. But he would say, look, once we realize that you're the one that ascribes purpose to nature, then that at least opens up a kind of freedom for us to debate about what f things we find beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think the, the thing about the, the romantic tradition is that they turn on this kind of frustrating point that the whole point, that the, 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 the whole system depends on, on um, natural beauty having no purpose. And this is what Kant, Kant calls its purposiveness without a purpose. Um, the only thing there is, is once you start to try to instrumentalize it, you lose that purposiveness um, and it effectively becomes political. And I think the, the, the feeling I get from German Romanticism is a kind of yearning for a solution to that problem, that, that as soon as you instrumentalize beauty or art, you lose the detachment, which makes it useful in the first place. And I think Adorno never really resolves that. And I think what he's really doing is mourning after that, that, 
and the frustrating kind of answer that seems to kind of languish somewhere behind a veil. Um, and so we don't really get anywhere, you know. I, I, what, what Adorno, where, where he takes it, uh, is he, he says that the artwork resembles the commodity um, in that the thing about art is it kind of makes a claim to be beyond normal social relations. And that claim, when we're looking at artwork, leads us to kind of become lost and we have a kind of transcendental moment. But what Dornis says, what's really important in terms of like how, how we can actually live as humans is not so much the floaty part, it's the part, it's, it's when that finishes. So this is what he calls a shudder. So Donna would say when you're listening to classical music, you're particularly into... Um, the floaty part is probably bird. my favorite term I've ever heard expressed <laughs> in this fucking podcast. The floaty part. <laughs> the floaty part is the non-fungible beautiful. Yeah. And he, he would say you would get lost and at some point you'd be snapped out of that moment of, of, of being lost in this transcendental moment with the music. And it was in the snapping back into yourself that you realize uh, the real conditions of life, which are a right. kind of uh, an awkward kind of uh, break between the subject and object. And so you realize that break and you realize it's not quite right, but you know that that's also the conditions upon which we live. Um, so the experience of, of listening to art for Adorno, listening to art, listening to music, or looking at art for Adorno, um, is not really a comfortable one which leads us out. It's one more that leads us into the problem. In that snap, yeah. when you when you're say you're in a museum, you're looking at uh, Rothko, and then the guard walks past and you snap back into yourself. It's like shit. It's not like I've got the answer. It's like I've no way I haven't got the answer. So we started this with. I, I just want to frame a little bit here. We started with uh, Kant unexpectedly. I like that we did, though. Um, and you said an interesting thing that I think speaks about your book, which we haven't, or we think we mentioned the title. His book is, uh, Mike's book is Memeing of Mark Fisher. Not out yet, but will be out this year. And I, I got the sense, it's about Adorno, Marcuse, Mark Fisher. And you said something interesting in your uh, explanation there about loss, because I, I feel like there each of those in their own way is a philosopher of something being lost, whether it's Kant's sublime or, or some sort of engagement in the world. And I, I was wondering if you could, if you would frame uh, your project, the acid stuff as sort of an answer to that sense of loss. Is the acid left an answer to a sense of loss? Uh, firstly, the book is called, you, you got it right, the main title is called The Meaning of Mark Fisher. And I never say the subtitle either, but I will say it now because um, it's quite long, but I think it's important. Um, the meaning of Mark Fisher, how the Frankfurt School foresaw capitalist realism and what to do about it. So it's really about how, um, how Fisher is ultimately, should we say, indebted to the Frankfurt School. But in any case, he was very much influenced by the Frankfurt School, which I think is an important point because he's hugely popular with young people now. And, you know, you, you see young people who are getting into philosophy online and they're like, uh, like Fisher and uh, kind of getting into, or, you know, starting to kind of discern something uh, in relation to the Frankfurt School, but they're, they're kind of a bit lost. But actually, uh, the themes are, are kind of similar. And, and you can see just where Fisher is taking straight, particularly from Adorno, and particularly in terms of their their melancholy, um, depression, and, and how they see art as presenting some kind of way out, but not an answer. It's more like how art can be utilized 
um, to cope with, with with the excesses of capitalism, basically. Uh, so Fisher is talking about how capitalism causes depression. Adorno makes a similar point, but never like that concisely. Um, but they kind of point to how something in the broken hole we can maybe recover moments of beauty or or, or, or moments of rebellion through art, uh, particularly through abstract art for Adorno. But I think Fisher is saying a similar thing. Could I just ask a, a quick follow-up question to that too? That sounds personally less Adornian to me and more kind of like what Deleuze and Guattari were talking about in something like A Thousand Plateaus. And I think a lot of reasons people like Deleuze and Guattari is precisely that Adorno and Horkheimer are kind of downers, just relentless downers, and they have this really nostalgic appreciation of art. You read Deleuze and Guattari, they really liked a lot of people like the Beats, you know, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, people who had this kind of psychedelic idea of reinventing themselves in the context of a capitalist society. Uh, and how that could itself could be kind of a countercultural activity. Would that be accurate to say, or am I completely missing the mark here? For me, that sounds a bit like about Adorno's uh, bourgeois nature. Uh, he was very into art like, again, Mahler, Schomburg, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, Kafka, Samuel Beckett. So stuff that's really not intelligible to the masses. And it certainly wasn't about beat movements or, or, or any kind of movements which try and assemble kind of, uh, you know, the detritus of capitalism and and, 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 and kind of build barricades or, or, you know, kind of art that kind of looks a bit like barricades, you know, kind of I knows what he was punk, about punky, fucking, punky punky type stuff. Adorno yeah. wasn't into that at all. He was, he was very bourgeois. But I think that's just because he was literally bourgeois. He's, the parents of all the Frankfurt school ran, ran factories and things. They were industrialists, basically. Um, so the Frankfurt School are kind of dealing with how to position yourself within all of this when you hate your parents, but you're actually bourgeois and you, you don't probably, <laughs> you know, you don't want to be one of the people with their heads on spikes if there's a revolution. So they're, you Fuck know, it's you, basically Ma, bourgeois academia. I'm not going to go buy your factory. I'm going to go become a Marxist. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Before we go any further, uh, we got this. It's the name of your channel. It's the name of Mark Fisher's unfinished book or unfinished project. Acid Communism. Now, do you have to do acid to be involved in this, or is that just a recommend, recommended reading? Okay, so acid, acid communism was the name <laughs> of Fisher's book, and, and the channel's called Acid Left. Um, no, you don't have to do acid, no, or any or any drugs. This is a, an interesting point. But actually, not I, a necessary, but a recommended condition. You should do them if you want to do them. Probably, um, we've all done them. I just don't do them anymore. People don't believe me. Um, it's been a long time <laughs> since I since I have done any. Um, but my co-host says he does, and I do believe him um, <laughs> on that point. Um, but yeah, the Acid Left YouTube channel we run, we also have an Instagram and various other platforms. We have a Patreon as well. Um, we're trying to capture that. I th you know, I think the Acid Communism's idea that Mark Fisher talks about in his unfinished book uh, does really draw on Frankfurt School, but most obviously on Marcuse, because Marcuse got very into the protest movement. Um, of the 60s and he used to actually protest with Angela Davis um, so he was kind of quite different from Adorno in fact actually they got in a massive argument in the 1969 Adorno students were rebelling in his university in Frankfurt and Adorno actually called the police on them famously because they, they were occupying the building <laughs> I remember yeah didn't, they, didn't the they flash their boobs yeah they exposed their breasts and he was just like oh gross 
<laughs> and he called the cops on them. What a fucking prig. Actions. There was an action in German called the breast action. I, I can't remember the exact, exact German, but it literally translates as, as the breast action. Um, and yeah, these three students got up on the stage with Adorno and, and, and bared their breasts and wrote something on the blackboard, but I don't remember what it was. That's probably pretty crucial. Marcuse actually wrote from America to Adorno because Marcuse stayed on after the war. Adorno and Hawkeye returned to, to, people always say to rebuild Germany. It sounds kind of grand, but they wanted to get involved with academia in, in Germany. And Marcuse wrote to Adorno, as they often did, exchange letters and said, can I come and, and give a talk to your students, address your students in much the same way as he used to address students in America at the time with Angela Davis and other, and other figures. Um, and Adorno didn't really like that. He thought it was kind of interfering and they basically argued backward and forward. And they talked about Vietnam and, and, and you know, the students kind of, their basic objections. Um, and one of those things that they objected to heavily was the Vietnam War. So I think Adorno is like, kind of, I think that one of his points to, to Marcuse was um, you basically have to, if you know, if you're, going to con if you're going to condemn violence, you'd have to condemn violence by the Viet Cong as well as by America. I didn't know that. I had never heard that before. Adorno, old Adorno, both sides to the Vietnam War. What a cuck. Yeah. Anyway, Mike, I, mean, I wanted to ask uh, if we don't have to do drugs to get in, drop acid, uh, why the acid? What is? Uh, can you explain that with reference to Mark Fisher's unfinished project? Um, Fisher said a few different things, but he said that acid is corrosive, but also acid kind of evokes the spirits, the spirit of the 60s, uh, psychedelia, etc. But I think he said you don't have to take acid. Certainly, I think he, said, he has said that at points. And uh, it's more about a counterculture, developing a counterculture equal to the 60s and to rave culture in the 90s. And that culture enabling us to develop a class consciousness. And it's a very good idea. You know, I like that. Um, I don't know how it works now. It seems even more necessary now than when Fisher was writing that. I guess he was writing that in 2016 or so. So it's important to keep this double meaning in one sense, acid is corrosive. And in another sense, it's, uh, I don't know, transsensory understanding of a whole. The psychedelia and this corrosiveness, they both point to... Um, a kind of shifting of the boundaries and to, I think, particularly that main boundary between us humans and nature or between the individual and the, and the object, um, that it's all about that, you know, it's about how do we square the fact of us being objects. And when you take psychedelics, you kind of get lost in the object, you become one with everything. And, you know, we take psychedelics or have some kind of spiritual experience. And I suppose depression and psychosis can be, you know, moments of losing that boundary and you know that can be scary for people um but so you know sort the, of boundary a... the boundary isn't there so it's like how do we deal with that boundary that is kind of essential but gets in the way of so much very nice uh th this sounds to me like an expression or double articulation of an opposition to alienation alienation obviously as a negative term but this corrosiveness the acid is negating that negation, whereas something like nostalgia is trying to answer the the alienated negative with something positive, but that positivity is fanciful. Yeah, it's. Um, I think. I think. Yeah, it, it's how do we confront this boundary that we've put up? How do we take it down? 
and you know in a way that functions you know because if we can't just simply take, take down the boundary between subject and object we, we won't be able to do anything anymore yeah that brings to mind also uh the marx's 1844 manuscripts when he's uh, admittedly a lot more humanist about his uh, goals and intentions but he identifies several kinds of alienation not just from nature and not just from our own labor but a sort of uh, alienation from the species from the human race really in absence of any any unified historical project yeah that makes sense yeah but i think then you have to imagine a time when we when we weren't alienated from the species has that ever been the case uh, well, in, in term in what Marx is saying, it's a, a function of the profit motive that makes you inclined to compete rather than cooperate. Well, I also yeah, think, yeah, okay. I also think that Marx's theory of alienation is almost always understood correctly in a pejorative sense, but it does have a productive uh, quality to it, right? In that our alienation, at least for the early Marx, is part of what drives us forward, right? The fact that we're alienated from nature is why we labor to prove our condition within nature. You know, the fact that we're alienated from one another is one of the reasons why we build communities and why the failure of those communities to provide for our social needs eventually leads to revolutionary activity, right? Uh, you know, alienation has this kind of engine-like quality to it where it destroys, but then it also breeds creation down the line in a certain sense. I, I had a question, though, uh, Mike, that actually, this is kind of really, really down to earth, speaking as like a guy who teaches students, right? People, students in my class... Fucking love Mark Fisher. Just worship the guy. Uh, like I was saying before we began this, people, you know, Gen Xers have Kurt Cobain. Us millennials kind of had David Foster Wallace and Amy Winehouse. A lot of Zoomers I know just like him. Uh, and I think one of the reasons they like him, uh, we can talk about the depression angle later on because I think that's really important, is because he occupies this kind of midway point between academia and being kind of an activist cultural figure. Uh, and the reason why he's more popular than someone like Adorno is because I think a lot of them think that Adorno is, in his attitude and disposition, pretty much kind of a square. You know, what he says might be radical, but, you know, if you have this idea that if you hung out with Adorno at night, uh, it would be classical music, talking about theory, uh, and then shitting on rap music or whatever. Whereas Adorno, uh, you know, Mark Fisher, you'd probably hang out, smoke a joint, talk some deep shit late into the night. So they like him for that reason, right? And I'm just wondering if you can talk about whether you think that this is a good thing to have figures that occupy this kind of cultural space between the academy uh, and pure activism that are seen as act as like intellectuals, but hip, accessible, a little bit edgy, you know, all the kind of things that give them a certain kind of currency. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, think, I think yeah. this is the thing. This is where the book is called The Meming of Mark Fisher, because what the Frankfurt School talk about and Fisher a lot is the way that capitalism co-ops counterculture. And the book is about how that's you know really happening now, particularly, you know, in relation to Fisher, or at least, you know, there's this irony that Fisher, who talked about the co-optation of culture, of counterculture has been so far co-opted as a meme. He's become a meme and, yeah, and the absolutely. memeing of Mark Fisher, the, the, you know, the making meme of Mark Fisher um, does kind of fuck with his message a bit. I think it makes, it makes it kind of 
silly or or just I mean silly might be one thing but it makes it just very negative and and cynical often there's a lot of edgelordy type statements coming out about Fisher or there's like you know um there's the one with the bed and it has capitalist realism bed sheet cover and it's and then it says in the meme that, yeah. font impact font uh we're fucking on the Fisher bed tonight and it's just it's funny because it's funny because it's so ridiculous and a bit sad because it's like all you can get off that is like laughing but then going fuck that's really where we're at that's just that you know that's what what Fisher comes to now in a way that you don't get much off that meme it's kind of it's kind of repellent in the sense that it throws something back at you and you don't really get to any kind of theory or any kind of idea for praxis or, or actual praxis um so the book speaks a bit about that and you know Fisher himself set up a a Facebook page about dysfunction dysfunctionality of, of capitalism um which was all kind of told through through broken machines like broken vending machines and and kind of daft looking toy robots and things I don't know what and I mean I remember being on it uh was it around 2015 um and people who were following the page, and there were several thousand followers, um, started to see the numbers dwindle, like rapidly, fairly rapidly, steadily, over a few hours. And then it was realised, because Fisher said it on his own profile, that Fish had taken everyone off, taken all the followers off, because the only way to actually disable a page back then was to was to take all the followers off, was to remove followers one by one. So he got so angry at the page because he'd made it to be kind of about capitalism critiquing it, but it had become a stupid meme page that kind of wasn't able to do what it was trying to do um, because everyone was just shit posting. So it become like broken capitalism in itself. Uh, he got so upset by this, he actually took the whole thing down. You imagine that he would have probably actually been quite literally embittered. Otherwise you wouldn't have the energy to just take everyone off one by one. Hmm. Yeah, no, so one can only imagine that he might be, a bit annoyed at how he's been taken now. Well, can I ask you know, what's the right way to, to deal with him then, right? Because I'll be honest, right? Like the way that I pay tribute to Mark's Titanic legacy, right, is in a really boring way, quite frankly. You know, right now I'm writing a book, Merge is a Postmodern Culture for Pork Collar McMillan. And, you know, there's a section on Mark Fisher where there are footnotes, you know, Fisher, Mark, capitalist realisms, blah, blah, blah. It's pretty dull, you know what I mean? From, you know, a cultural standpoint. Uh, so I think that some of the stuff that you're talking about and that you discuss in your book shows that people are being creative with his legacy and his image and his ideas, but then there's all the risks that you're talking about, right? So what, what's the right balance to set? The thing is, I do, I do like that it's happening in some respects. This is the awful thing, though, when you're a little bit older and dealing with these themes and you want to sometimes say, you know, hey, that's not really on. You want to shake people up and say that's not the right way, but then you become obviously the, the boomer. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it needs to lead to praxis at some point. It's all great if it gets people excited, it gets people involved. If somewhere along the line we actually have the in real life meetups, you know, that Fisher suggested in in uh, the unfinished book Acid Communism, and he talks about you know networks of learning and consciousness raising exercises and concerts, you know, but things that that get people together and, and give them, you know, a feeling of class consciousness and, and of why things are happening the way they're happening, i.e. an awareness of capitalism and Marx, etc. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. I got a feeling it could happen after 
lockdown, something could happen because people are going to want to get out again. And a generation that's basically not really gone to university in the traditional sense because they haven't got to actually go there and party and whatever, are going to want to go out and, and you know, get crazy in the streets. And, but, you know, unfortunately, they're going to meet a load of right wing people who want to do the same. I don't know which way it's going to go, but there is, there is that potential more than maybe before. But in these directing. So the question is, how do we direct that through the Internet? And uh, that's, that's really up to us. It's up to people like us, obviously. Um, people will probably be more of a following than me. But, you know, I suppose as a writer, I have my role. All right. Since you brought up Praxis, uh, I would like to combine two questions into one, if I may. We have this disagreement between Adorno and Marcuse in the 60s over protests and, and activism and so on. Basically, Marcuse calling Adorno to, to bourgeois or whatever. And then this reflects in a lot of ways uh, the bind that the left generally is still in. And we could call that or we could say both the academic left and the online left, which uh, the three of us like I said, have kind of a foot in both of those worlds. And Mark Fisher stands in, in a strange position. I was going to ask you the same, same question Matt did in, in terms of, are we in a Mark Fisher bubble? Because it just seems like everybody on, on posting pages know who Mark Fisher is and almost his, uh, his sources, Jameson foremostly, they're never brought up. But in the academy, you never hear about Mark Fisher at all, pretty much. It's usually all about Jameson and culture industry and things like that. So I wondered if you had some sense of a praxis that brings academics and the internet left together, or are they separate? Are they just fundamentally yeah, separate? I had a colleague of mine who, uh, I won't name him, but he called uh, Fisher an intellectual lightweight, uh, spinning off regurgitated postmodern theory from the 1990s, which I thought was really unfair since there's a lot of originality in all of his books, I'd say. Uh, well, you get that with anyone one. who's popular, right? Like, they call Zizek a lightweight, and I, I think there's nothing further from the truth. But anyway, I, yeah, I, I'm exactly interested in how the praxis crosses those uh, gatekeeping boundaries. Yeah, that um, that's tricky. I mean, I think everyone has to look at themselves, really, and, and, and look at to what extent their academic activity or online activity is really contributing something or to what extent it's like giving one an excuse to be without getting their hands dirty. You know, I think that the thing with talking about working class people or uh, people in developing countries or immigrants to, to uh, Western countries is that you're able to observe them from a distance. It's a bit like looking at them through a telescope. The way, you know, the fact that one is talking about them online, you know, means that you're not actually going and talking to them in real life. And would you really want to in many cases, as in would many people in the academic left really want to go and talk with the poor people? Um, you know, I, I think that there's a, a, an element of stasis with academia and it's a middle class pursuit aimed at keeping the middle class in the middle. Um, and I think this is what you're alluding to. Marcuse says to Adorno, I believe it's irresponsible to sit at one's writing desk advocating activities to people who are fully prepared to let their heads be bashed in for the cause. Yeah. yeah. I think what you said is really resonates with me, right? Um, you know, I've, I've done my fair share of activist politics, though I should do more. 
<laughs> it's easier now that I'm back in my home country and not in Mexico. But the thing is, I don't think a lot of people go into left-wing academia because they're really all that interested in activism. They do go into it because, frankly, it's kind of a glamorous activity. It allows you a bit of a punk credential uh, without actually doing anything that's all that risky. Uh, and you can see that in the kind of disposition a lot of uh, academic leftists take, where the ironic th- irony is uh, that a lot of them can be just as status and class oriented as anyone else. Uh, like I've met people who swear by Karl Marx and who I know in the academy, who nonetheless will sit there and be like, oh, you wrote for that journal. Uh, and we all know what's meant by that journal, right? <laughs> you know, it's not Harvard Law Review. And I think, really? Like, what the fuck is wrong with this, right? Yeah, you know, it's you- while they're writing... A, a critical Marxist analysis of class in the novel Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with with academic Marxism. It's just, you know, there's kind of a weird differential. Well, you know, man, there. I don't feel like it's very Marxist. You say there's nothing wrong with academic Marxism. I mean, there might, <laughs> there might be something wrong with it. I don't think it's a given that there's nothing wrong with it. Okay, well, uh, there's nothing wrong with approaching subject matters in an academically rigorous way from a Marxist standpoint. Let's put yeah, it that no, I, way. I, I understand, yeah, okay. yeah sorry, yeah. Um, with 120k a year salary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a it's a tricky one because you I hear I don't me, know. David Harvey. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, David Harvey earned his stripes. He's podcasting for the people now. That's uh, true. True. I mean, I don't. I mean, look at the art world. This is a, a worst case in a way. And and I was I've worked a lot in the art world, and you have these these exhibitions about about people capsizing in their boats in the Mediterranean. There's so many of these exhibitions, and probably not now because the focus has changed and the museums aren't open. But I mean, two or three years ago, you know, there were so many shows about the migrant crisis in Europe and, and there were never migrants there. There were migrants coming into Europe. There were so many, you could see so many living on the streets. I was living in Italy, in Rome at the time. And because they had very bad mismanagement of the, of the immigrant housing program, there were many immigrants living in the streets. So you would see them day in, you know, day after day, more and more, because many of them came to Italy as a first point of call when they were coming into Europe. Um, but, you know, there was always this big gap between the museum and the, the art world and, 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 and these immigrants, these migrants. It, it really was, it, it, you know, it's a kind of absolution of guilt. People couldn't face these pictures in newspapers of babies washing up on the beaches um, there's a need to do something. Um, I think it may be it's systemic in a way that, that, that people just don't know what to do because they're not supposed to know what to do. We're not supposed to really get involved. We're not allowed to change the world. The, the, the disposition of stasis is systemic. And I do allude to this in the book when I'm trying to, I'm trying to explain, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to account for the fact that, that uh, Benjamin is so bourgeois. And I think I kind of like move around that topic. Why, why do we have so much Frankfurt School on our reading list? Probably because it's not very dangerous. You know, I think you have to assume that if anything is on all the university reading lists, it's not really a threat. Uh, um, but on the other hand, I do kind of concede um, that if you were middle class, you know, in the last century or whenever, or whenever then, then, you know, your way of processing um, the social, you know, your way of processing social stratification and then your way of doing something about it is, is going to be very different to 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 working class uh, leftists, and probably it's going to be one of self preservation. It's going to be a, a, a posture of self preservation more than anything. And lest we are just pointing out the plank in our brother's eye, we're all sitting here with our nice microphones in our stable, rich countries, 
not doing much more than fantasizing about what we could do in some other time than the present. So let's be real about that. It's a similar thing. It is a similar thing. Yeah. But, and, and actually a lot of our circle go, well, you know, what, you know, I, I make podcasts. I have one role. I, I'm part of the media or the online media or academia or something. And they're kind of a bit surprised. I've had people kind of shift uncomfortably talking about this kind of thing. I think we are doing a similar thing. You know, I think, I think, I think surely the, one of the first ways to overcome this is at least to admit it, you know, that, that by doing this, we're not, you know, doing something more, more hands on, but of course uh, we can do both. Sure. We could do both, but look, that's where the fantasies just at these days. Be a part of organized labor. That's where the real praxis is. Bullshit. Matt, I know you have, and I have been involved in labor action, labor disputes, yeah. spoiler, the employers won, and the union leaders were there live streaming fucking Instagram so they could get another union job the I, next I year. Sorry, go ahead. So I can stand out there with my placard and my a red flag, but pretending like we're still in 1890s Belgium doesn't constitute real action. And if that's the choice, <laughs> I'd rather run an educational podcast that people get something out of than fantasize that strikes make any shit of difference. I mean, bruh. Well, I, I think I take it a different way, right? First of all, I, I always say to people, I don't think that anybody should be blamed for the country that they live in or the class that they belong to. Uh, you should be blamed if you don't reflect critically upon that and realize the problems uh, of enjoying certain kinds of privilege that are denied to others, right? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of people I know who grew up in very precarious backgrounds uh, who grew up to be Trumpist as fuck. Let's just put it that way, right? Very, very Trumpist. Very much, I made it from the bottom to the top. Uh, I deserve everything that I get. Everyone else from my hometown, met a lot of people in Mexico who felt this way, actually, can go fuck themselves, right? Uh, and I know some people who came from middle-class backgrounds who are very active on the ground in dealing with issues um, like child poverty, like, you know, uh, various kinds of diseases, earthquake, you know, relief, you name it, right? Uh, so I don't think that, you know, your situation is destiny. Uh, I do think that a lot can be determined by how you approach that. Uh, when it comes to the issue of, you know, what it is that we can do, I absolutely agree with Pills and with you, Mike, that we need to be a lot more active on issues that make a difference to people in a concrete way. And we were actually arguing about this amongst ourselves a little bit last week uh, when one of us said, it seems sometimes like there's no hope. You know, what can we possibly do to change things? Uh, and my kind of response to this was, look, like the way that you have to kind of sell the population, I hate to use that term, but it's true, on radical change is by what Bhaskar Sankara talked about in my mind in the Socialist Manifesto, help people see how the world can be changed five years from now, why their lives would be better, uh, and how it can be done feasibly, right? Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of people like ourselves who engage in theory really aren't that good at. You know, we're very good at criticizing. We're less good at the, here's what will happen five years from now if you end up supporting our radical party. This is why you'll be better off and why your kids will be better off a couple of years down the line, right? I do see boomer activists who are bits technophobic uh, and they'll say things like real activism is only when you're marching on the street. And I'll sometimes say, yeah, yeah, you know, definitely if you're never marching in the street, you're probably, you know, an armchair activist, but there's nothing wrong with sitting there and producing content online that mobilizes people. That's interesting. That all takes work and time and effort, and you deal with shit and backlash because of it. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, I think 
the the thing that I always take from Adorno, and I think this is why it's ended up probably in all, all three of my books. Um, and it's just something I've been looking at since I studied myself at BA level, when I was just kind of struggling with Adorno books and, and picking out phrases that I could actually understand. Um, um, it's this thing of, you know, we're kind of basically screwed, but we have to do something anyhow. And that, you know, that something should be art. And, it, you know, this goes back to the famous line of uh, making art after mm-hmm. Auschwitz, or in fact, you know, it being impossible to, right, to right. write lyric poetry after Auschwitz, which he writes in a couple of essays. But I always take it from his essay on commitment of, I think it was 1962, was it? 61 or 62. And basically... He says this line, yeah, it's impossible to make write poetry after Auschwitz and everyone sees it on that one line. But then he says later, but we have to keep making, and he literally says art anyhow so that we don't surrender to cynicism. So it's like this, we can't do it, but we have to do it anyhow. And and, and him saying we can't do it really means that the conditions to, to make art, you know, in, in the Kantian sense of something transcendental can't exist uh, in the society that's also responsible for the Holocaust, for example. Um, so the point being that it has to be so controlled that nothing like art can exist because, you know, the Holocaust was was about identifying people, you know, to the degree that you could then, uh, should we say, reappropriate them, or basically kill them and, and, and use the resources as part of the war effort. That's how far capitalism had come. So if it's come that far, there can't be anything called art. But then Adorno says, we have to make it anyhow. And I suppose that's where art is illusory. It's something that we can always kind of manage to leverage from somewhere, from some corner of our mind. Um, and I think this, you know, there's nothing left to be done, but let's make art anyhow, is the basic posture of what I wrote, wrote in the last book, Can the Left Learn to Meme, the basic posture of the millennial, but now we would probably say the Zoomer by now. But you see them like having basically no hope, but constantly just doing stuff on their phones. And they are making stuff. They're making memes. They're making selfies. I mean, they can be to some degree artistic. Um, you know, they're constantly making. They're affirming their identity. And I think that's all we can do. I think that's what we can do. And it is what we do do, which is why I say in the, in the last book, um, the millennial generation is the Adornian generation, but only in that one sense. And I think that's, that would apply to the Zoom, Zoomer generation as well. And this is the kind of problem that I think a lot of people have when they hear oh, radical art, experimental art, transformative art. Uh, they think, oh, so now all of a sudden I'm going to have to watch something that's essentially unwatchable. It's a Jean-Luc Godard film. Uh, rather than just getting to come home from my job, uh, sit down and engage in the at least entertaining stuff that the culture industry has to offer me. Uh, and I talked about this with Alfie Brown also when it came to video games. But do you know how to answer that? How can we make radical art that is transformative, as transgressive, but people won't look at it and just say, unless I was some cafe-swilling fucking Parisian intellectual high on absinthe, uh, you know, this isn't a piece of trash or this is just pretentious tribe. Or um, well, I think this is far from Adorno, but I think it's where people make it themselves and they're, then they're not right. going to be disturbed in that way i think that's that's what we're getting to now is that people are constantly making stuff themselves but you know like i say this isn't at all adornian this is where adornian you know adornianism kind of kind of fails us um just because he was so bourgeois and removed i think you have to somehow get adorno's concepts to meet up with with um situationism for example 
so yeah, that would be that would be my answer there. I mean, I, I mean, I think the thing is we have to use Adorno, and we have to use, you know, the Frankfurt School as we have to use everyone Deleuze, Marx. Um, but we have to use them how, how we want. We have to take bits and rearrange them and mix mix and match them with other people. I think that's very much the case with Adorno. That that he's just so wrong and so right at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a bit of a thesis when it comes to this because I've been thinking and talking and posting about art for a while is not to see art as the one product of the one individual. Cause if you think of that, then you look up where are the great artists, well, they're nowhere, but something you said uh, way earlier in the conversation, Mike is like, it's not, it's not about the one meme that makes it. It's about almost the mass of memes. If you have a movement of leftist stuff, a flow of leftist stuff, like just for example, one of the reasons I decided like I wanted to start a YouTube channel, it wasn't really because I was just bored one day. It was because on YouTube, all this shit is made by the right wing and that right wing yeah. stuff changes consciousness. It changes the discourse in in the broad general sense. And I was like, well, if they can fucking do that, I know that the leftist ideas are better. They would, They should be catching on in place of this garbage. So I, I kind of think of art as not, don't attach what can I do to one thing, but more do your one little part and do, or have someone else do their little part, then do collabs, like we're doing collabs right now. But if you have enough flow, we can just separate or call art content now, because that's basically all it is anyway, unfortunately. But that's totally stripped of this romantic vision of the genius alone in their house creating uh, the next uh, Albrecht Durer painting or something like that. I actually think that your argument for a kind of democratic approach to art uh, is really the more radical way to go than what you see sometimes with Adorno, who I think you're right, is both so right and so wrong at the same time about these kind of issues. Uh, and it also runs really counter to the way that a lot of conservatives approach art, which is via this combination of... Uh, does it kind of conform to elitist expectations about what great art is supposed to be? And of course, uh, does it actually sell? And you can see people like Jordan Peterson articulating this position, even in his latest book, Beyond Order, where he says things like, very few people actually have the real creativity to produce things that are inspired, which is why the vast majority of artists are, don't sell anything and only a handful actually sell anything. You know, most of you will never actually be able to produce anything that's actually creative. And my kind of response to that is, First off, who the fuck are you to say that? And secondly, yeah, but a lot of people don't engage in art because they're expecting to become the next fucking Michelangelo uh, or Jean-Luc Godard or whatever. They do it because we live under alienated conditions uh, and doing this allows them to express this sense of alienation both for themselves and to other people around them uh, who might be able to empathize and relate to it. So it has this democratic quality to it. Um, and the fact that these people don't like these kinds of expression probably testifies to the fact that they know it has a certain degree of radical potential, that if enough people start to understand uh, that they have these problems through art, it might actually lead them to take political action um, on behalf of those feelings. I don't know what you think about that. but Separate the art from this fantasy of the artist. Yeah, like the, the, the kind of artist that a lot of, uh, the kind of conception of art that you see many conservatives still put forward is some combination of a very successful capitalist and the romantic genius that we've been criticizing, right? And in an ideal world, they think the two should go together, that the romantic genius is the one who's going to succeed in a capitalist society. We should flip that on that head and say, you don't have to be a genius to produce art that other people will empathize with. 
Uh, and in fact, if other people empathize with it, uh, that might mean it has a certain degree of radical potential, uh, since if they can see in the kind of social problems you're facing, their own social problems, that's a good start for it when it comes to uh, inspiring collective action. That just, you know, I'm spitballing. I don't have a worked out theory of this, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, mean I, suppose, I suppose the history of modern art has been the history of, of moving away from that notion of genius or even talent. And you know, I think we've really gone the whole way. We're really there. You know, anyone can make anything and, you know, anyone can then become famous um, and maybe rich from it. But I think there's getting, you know, we're getting some kickback and then rightfully it does pose some problems. Yeah, um, sure. Is what we're seeing in Facebook forums and it doesn't obviously only apply to art, it applies to philosophy as well. And we know that problem well of, you know, you get these bizarre kind of <laughs> forms of argumentation or people just deliberately being, you know, obnoxious. Um, and you get the art, the kind of artistic equivalent as well. Um, and you just get bad art as well and just bad argumentation. I mean, I mean what does one do with that? obnoxious? Never. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's tricky. I mean, what, what does one do? Because the thing is, there is always that possibility that if you know, if there isn't a God being and there isn't an actual right way of doing anything as such, we kind of moved away from that. And we, you know, after shedding God, we just shed experts as such and hierarchies, or, you know, we'd like to, but, you know, we have culturally to a large degree shed those hierarchies. Then we leave ourselves open that maybe the answers, you know, such as they, such as they can even exist now, but kind of the, the modes of being that are now going to come about could come from anywhere that you know who are we to say that this is wrong or this is right um it gets very tricky you don't want to be the one saying yeah. this is wrong but i think when it gets to ethics we're still able to some degree to argue that there is a superior ethics although it's not the one that wins out in elections unfortunately um but, but you know uh, within our kind of academic and art sphere and whatever we're able to kind of argue and it's, it, it seems to quite simply be about not causing other people pain deliberately. That still exists. Well, here, I'll give an example of what I mean, because I completely agree with you, Mike, that these are all worries I have whenever I've moved too much in a democratic direction, which is just that anybody's going to be able to say, you know, my position is as valid as anyone else's. Uh, my arguments are just as right as yours, even though you might have thought through them a little bit more. Uh, all that's extremely dangerous. So I don't want to go full POMO <laughs> when it comes to my democratic account of art. When I'm thinking more when it comes to solidaristic art, that's the term I'll use it, is something like what Cornell West is talking about in Race Matters. So we all know Adorno just had this really crappy uh, interpretation of jazz, right? Uh, and blues is being kind of derivative, not particularly interesting, uh, limited its transformative potential. But Cornell West points out that if you think about jazz and blues, uh, they managed to express the feelings of a very long-suffering people that have been marginalized for hundreds of years. Uh, and it, they did so with an aesthetic language that resonated uh, both within people of that community uh, and you know the white oppressors uh, who started to recognize that in the trauma of that music, uh, they were seeing the kind of oppression that they were inflicting upon others reflected back towards them, which is a very painful thing to do. Uh, and when I heard Wes put it that way, all of a sudden, what seemed like kind of mass music actually has a lot of radical potential to it, right? It really kind of compels the oppressor to think a little bit about the horror of what they're doing while providing a solidaristic basis for a long-suffering community. 
So in that sense, I see it as a democratic, solidaristic kind of art uh, in a way that Adorno wouldn't have, right? And so that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking of when it comes to you know, solidaristic art. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, I mean, I think that does make sense, but I think, I think I'm sure you already have this in mind as you said it. Um, you know, there was this co-optation of of jazz music, and then anything like that gets co-opted, the message basically just you know kind of kind of disappears. You know, I think I think the thing is that there is there is fundamentally, you know, in Hollywood and also in in um, mainstream music aesthetics there is a kind of inbuilt ethics it's like lowest common denominator ethics no one will want to hurt no one will want to hurt anybody deliberately the kardashians <laughs> would say this you know everyone's saying this. <laughs> yeah. no the one wants to hurt the anybody. chain smokers but but but, but it's, it's <laughs> yeah. a system that this it's part of a system that does cause untold pain so you have this problem that, that there's no problem maintaining the lowest common denominator ethic but it's being maintained kind of overtly whilst covertly the exact opposite is being done and i don't know how we're going to get how we're going to get around that because that's how you manage to have you know these heinous right-wing governments still elected because they kind of masquerade behind that lowest common denominator ethics it's all to do with the family you want your family to be well don't you you want little jenny and johnny to go to school you know without any problems and be safe and what have you and that, and that appeals to people's like basic ethic sense you know then their neighbors whatever um but it's only that there's nothing behind it so you, you still get them to vote for for something you know morally reprehensible or ethically reprehensible so i don't know i mean you're able to have this kind of apparent cultural democracy that kind of lets everyone do everything whilst you present this facade of well everyone could everything but you know also let's not hurt each other and then you're still able the captain's still able you know to to basically in its economic format carry on un, untold exploitation so i don't know I, um, I don't know where also where i'm really going with this except that um you know, where, where in that are we going to free up the revolutionary potential of mm-hmm. anyone being able to make anything? You see what I mean? Oh, I think you're, I think 100% right. I mean, Fisher pointed this out, right? That punk, when it started, was genuinely revolutionary music, right? It was angry, it was visceral, it was targeted, and very quickly became co opted by the system uh, and turned into Blink 182. Uh, not that there's anything wrong. I don't well, like exactly. What, 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 yeah. what, what, what I mean to say by that, just to kind of get get what I was saying to a kind of point, so now it makes sense why I was saying it, is that we have any anything goes bookended by a kind of very neat Walton style morality on the one end, and exploitation of the developing world on the other end. You see what I mean? Yeah. And in between that, anyone can do anything as long as they don't they don't challenge those two those two extremes so you know i just i think that ultimately i can't see how that's all going to collapse unless we just really do let you know anyone can do anything go to its absolute extreme such that it ends up kind of you know we we somehow need to just smash all that and i can't see how we can do it except by letting the internet push through and it sounds kind of accelerationist which isn't really what i want to say but we're caught between a void and another void. 
The void and the abyss, yeah. The void and the abyss. It's just the thing that you, we wouldn't end up surely with anything better. But, but, you know, the thing is what, you know, somewhere from all this, when you think if anything, anything goes, anyone can do anything, then we can no longer hold on to expertise. And then from all that, because anyone is suddenly doing anything, then something new can emerge. And it's not a swastika because we want to re-emerge. We want the completely new thing we haven't ever thought of to emerge. Well, we, we get into debates like or debates or conversations, not really a debate, but conversations like this. And it's like, well, what do we want? What do we allow to happen? What are we worried about happening? But ultimately it doesn't matter whether you're worried or whether you don't want something to happen or whether you want to establish rules because those rules aren't going to be followed anyway. So I, I, I guess I, it's a, a hopeless position in a sense, but ultimately you have to just make sure you're ahead of the curve and, for myself, you have to be making better content than that Ben Shapiro is making. You know, the kind of response that I have is that back in the early 2000s, I remember a lot of progressive became kind of digital utopians, that the democracy of the internet would allow everyone to produce art, uh, and then gradually that would lead to an undermining of the system. And we've completely seen that that hasn't happened, right? Uh, in fact, if anything, as uh, you pointed out and as Pills pointed out, many conservatives have learned how to use new digital spaces more effectively than leftists, which is fucking baffling. But, you know, it is what it is. Right. Uh, but my response to that would be, look, you know, it's in some senses a practical problem. Uh, we just need to find a way to, as you put it in your uh, second book, mean better. You know, we need to produce better Internet channels, better content, uh, things that work more effectively and inspire people. And then gradually we can hope to see this generate real activism on the streets. And I mean, it's, it's not something that any of us can do individually, right? Like our little fucking corner of the internet might inspire a few people, but, you know, we're not going to fucking start the plastic pills revolution. You know, acid communism, uh, you know, might ha has its corner of the internet. It might inspire a few people. But, you know, I don't imagine you're expecting, you know, that people are going to be carrying your flag in the streets, you know, to fucking bring Boris Johnson down anytime soon. But all together, we can start to make a difference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really wouldn't want people carrying my flag <laughs> or any flags, I suppose. But, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, we can all make a bit of a difference. Um, but I think somehow we need a bit of reprogramming. I mean, we can make a difference, but it's, that's going to involve some reprogramming. Adorno spoke always about this identity thinking. So we tend to think in terms of identifying. So we give things names, measures, numbers, whatever. This goes to extremes with capitalism. So we all effectively have a number, which is our monetary value. Um, and, and in that way, it's easier to exploit each other. And so he says that the only way we're going to get around this is by rethinking thought what he calls non-identity thinking. We need to not identify. We need to be able to, 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 some, to somehow think differently in a, way, in a way that he can't really explain, which is fine because, you know, philosophers often end up like that, that they can't actually come up with a, with a solution. You know, I think we need to be prepared to go that extra mile because it's quite easy to get in these discussions and someone says something smart about Marx and someone else chips in with something smart about Marx and then they add in some, some Lenin as well or whatever. I and mean, we all know that everyone's read something <laughs> but is it not it's true yeah i mean that's that's like a standard academic situation it's almost like those fucking two birds in a richard attenborough documentary where like it's like oh i'm gonna fucking test you and i'm gonna test you and it's like you read this you read this and it's like okay we've all established that you know everybody's got everyone's a read tick. something here okay <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. We, we need to go that extra mile somehow we need to 
I don't know. Can we can we be the can we be the like the last men or something? It sounds like Nietzschean. Can, you know, can can we be like future humans? I don't think so. No, but I mean, can we at least work out how we bring ourselves to go and speak to the actual workers? You know, I don't think many of us are going to the supermarket, and we don't we don't want to speak to people at the supermarket. We'll probably all use a self service checkout. I worked at a supermarket for seven years, and I can tell you that most of the people that come in to talk to you were fucking assholes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I, either I, I, this cabbage yeah. was too expensive, you charged me a dollar, it was 59 yeah, yeah. cents. But I always or, have to yeah. iterate that I have worked as well. And I mean, I worked a lot of my life in, in all kinds of supermarket jobs. And, but now, but now I'm, I'm, I do like visiting, lecturing, and proofreading, and bits of writing for people, this kind of thing. But the point is, I don't really consider myself, I'm not like a worker. I'm not in that really crappy position of working in a supermarket anymore no. for a long time. So that's the sense in which I, I go, let's go and talk to the workers. It's like, I still think I come from a working class background, but, you know, realistically, I'm not working in that sense. And I don't go and speak to the workers, you know? And I, I think the, the thing is, it's about organization in a literal sense of organization, meaning about using different organs for different things. Like you use, you mm. know, you use a hammer to hit a nail, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I don't think I'm the best person to go and G up the workers to go and talk to a load of nurses or something. I mean, I can do it, but it's people who are a lot more bubbly than me. But, you know, I can still do my part. I can maybe see that we need to go and speak to the workers and start to help organize that, but have some other role like the kind of thing I'm doing now, writing, et cetera. So yeah. I don't think we all ought to be going and talking to homeless and workers, et cetera, quite like that, because it would seem also awkward and unnatural, maybe, in many cases. So it's a, it's a body with organs, we could say. I just wanted to say still, because I want to reiterate, talking about what should happen on the internet or what we're worried about or what's dangerous, none of that's going to matter. This is mostly just feelings we're facilitating sentiment and yeah we feel powerful because we see our leftist friends get to twenty thousand followers and we're like damn this is really going to catch on but at least at least at the moment that's an economy of feelings and vibes because we don't have any political leverage and political leverage for the most part is money or you have two million followers not twenty thousand so as far as I'm concerned, you know, once in a while, maybe we get a new listener, great. Or there's some new articulations we come up with, great. Uh, but that in the end is still just vibes. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm so glad that people are taking the ride with us, certainly. It's amazing that people care to listen to us just banter on about ideas. Yeah. But having the right ideas is no different from having the wrong ideas when we're talking about the goodness in the world to come. Because whether you're Deleuzean, Marxist, anarchist, socialist, these are like basically aesthetic categories when you don't have political leverage. Yeah. And we don't really. The whole left, with every leftist influencer combined, still doesn't have enough political leverage and that fantasy irks me because it's made up that we're that we're gonna get people on the streets and that's gonna change something who cares about your flag nobody nobody with money cares so if we're gonna do roles or organs then yeah great we'll keep going giving language to sentiment namely alienation and those thoughts aren't even our thoughts in most cases. They're the thoughts of another intellectual class who are comfortably tenured at their Parisian universities or, you know. But time will tell. If these ideas are relevant in the future, we might not live to see them. But I'm down. Well, you can drop the acid in the floor and see 
the Rorschach mark that it burns. So do something. Who cares if it matters? Just do it and we'll see. Anyway, after all that, <laughs> sorry, we are on a time constraint. Mike, can you let us know where to find your shit? Um, I mean, you'd, you'd find me somewhere. I mean, people would find this, but they can go to well, the Acid Left YouTube. So you can just look on YouTube at the Acid Left. Uh, we're also on Instagram. My website is mikewatson.fi. Um, that's really it. The book details will be out soon everywhere. Um, All right, so yeah. zero books, right? And the book's coming out with zero books, yeah, September 24th. All right, everyone. And I've read it, and I can say uh, you should pick it up. It's really very interesting. And whether you read Mike's uh, last book or not, uh, it really is just a fantastic diagnosis uh, of where we are right now. And there's some really cool pop culture references for your, those of you who like those things. So. so keep a lookout for that. And you have just listened to another podcast where we didn't solve all the problems of the left, unfortunately. Next if we had another half hour, I think we could probably get there. We were getting there, yeah. I think we covered our bases better than, you know, than on many other podcasts. <laughs> Wait, what? There are other leftist podcasts? We did All a very right. good job of like explaining why we're why we're not changing anything, but that we really want to. Yeah, so we should turn our attention to why we can't change anything instead of trying to change anything. We can we can keep going in that direction. I say that and I wish it was a joke, but I guess it's not. Anyway, Mike, thanks so much for coming. Um, shout out to Finland. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And for our audience, uh, you will hear from us again next week. 